0: We are in Ezra chapter 2 this morning. I apologize, I'm going to adjust this, it's going to be loud probably. Ezra chapter 2. I'm just going to read a few verses, the first couple verses in Ezra chapter 2. This is God's holy, precious word. Ezra chapter 2 verse 1. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, or Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Saraiah, Reliah, Mordecai, Belshend, Mishpar, Rehum This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot happening in Ezra chapter 2. There's a lot going on here. It's almost all numbers and names. And Candace, she's in, she's in the nursery this morning, but she was saying to me she, yesterday, she's like, Hey, I read Ezra 2, you know, for tomorrow. Um, what are you going to say? It's just names and numbers. Like, what are you? What are you going to say? And which I was very grateful for that vote of confidence, and I was feeling really good about this. Um, but obviously, this is a unique chapter, right? And from in the Old Testament, we come across these. There's a couple spaces in the New Testament as well, but these kind of just lists of people. And there's lists and lists, and this person and this person, and, and here it's all these numbers of people, and then kind of numbers of the things they took, and the, the gold, and, and all these things. But as we zoom out on chapter 2, what we're seeing here is God bringing His people, thousands of people Right? They're packing up their, their life, they're, they've been there for 70 years, most of them, that's all, that's all they know, they're, they're going to travel nine months' journey back to their homeland, a place few remember, most have never seen, because God has called His people to a specific place. He's called His people to a specific people, and He's called His, His people to a specific lifestyle. So these people, they're packing up, and this is kind of the the list. This is a a major road trip, right? This is the road trip of all road trips. Now, have you guys ever um, gone on vacation with children? Right? Think about that. Like, if you haven't gone on vacation with children, I just encourage you after the meal, just kind of pick a family that has, they have a few kids, and just watch them just try to leave the building. Just watch them just try to leave, just to go home and then you can begin to understand when you go on vacation with your children it is uh, with anyone it's a task right so you have lists. here's the packing list we got we got to check all these things off and here's the to do list we have got to get all that done and then we got to get everyone in the car and we're we're leaving we're leaving the driveway at 5 a.m. everyone be, you better be there you know so we can get somewhere on time whatever on time means right and so it's this this adventure if you will of chaos and it's not fun it's not joyful It's not exciting, but you're doing all this preparatory work so that you can then get on the road, get on the road, because then you're going somewhere. And so many times, we just get frustrated with the element of like getting ready for something. We don't want to get ready. We just want to be on vacation. Now, vacations are good because we're hopeful when we go on vacation, we're hopeful that we'll, we'll have a good time, we're going to spend a lot of time together as a family, we're going to do a lot of fun things, we're hopeful that we'll have great conversation and we're going to make some sweet memories. It's a hopeful thing, and so that's why we push through and we do it. And we're hopeful that we're going to go somewhere, wherever, wherever we occupy for a, a few days or a week or two, it's going to be a great time. So vacations are great, they, they really are. Um, as long as you have the right expectation, you have the right expectation, And there's no doubt, all these thousands of people, they have expectations for what the journey ahead is going to be and what it means to get back to this promised land, back to Jerusalem, to the city, that, that place that God has called them to. They have high expectations. But the thing about expectations is they can kill you if you're not careful. You have wrong expectations, you will be disappointed. Now, I just want to go for a minute on this, okay, about this element of expectation, because so often we err on one side or the other with this in life. We will either have no expectations, right, which is not a good thing. You should have good expectations, good expectations for your spouse, for your children, for what work looks like for you, um, what church is of your church leaders. You should have good expectations, But you can't have unrealistic expectations. Your expectations can't be way out there because you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. And we know because we have the rest of Scripture that when these people set out to the promised land, they were expecting good, great things. And the Lord did wonderful things, but many, many hard things and sad things for years and decades to come. If their expectation was we're going to finally go back and we're finally going to figure it out we're finally going to be the people and, and just obey God's word and it's going to be good, it's going to be kind of paradise, we're going back to the garden it's going to be great. if that was their expectation, they were sorely disappointed or greatly disappointed because that's not the reality and sometimes in our own walk with the Lord, we have these expectations like if I could just if I could just To have my spiritual disciplines and I can just be disciplined in them every day. Then finally, I would be the kind of Christian I want to be, or I think I, I know I should be. If I could just do that, I would say it's great to have expectations. You should have expectations and you should have robust spiritual disciplines in the Word and in prayer and fellowship with the body. But we often have unhealthy expectations about those things, or unhealthy expectations about the church. Most people here. Have been, are here. You're a part of this church, but you've been a part of other churches, and you're not anymore. You're here. There's all kinds of reasons for that, all kinds of reasons. Good? some good, some maybe not good. I don't know. But the reality is, is we're here, and we should have good expectations of what it means to be a part of a church. You have to be expecting something. You should be expecting something. As God's people, what does it mean to be God's people. What it mean to follow him and, and to be who he has called us to be? Likewise, we can get into a church situation and we're just, it's just not working out the way I want it to work out. And maybe that's for a, maybe it's a genuine thing that needs addressed. But a lot of times we have to work through, what, what was I expecting? Was I expecting this? Did I communicate that? Did I share that with them? So many times, and this is a, a little token of wisdom that was passed on to me, and you need it if you don't have it, okay? <laughs> much of your con- the conflict in your life, so much of the conflict in your life, not all of it, but so much of it comes down to miscommunication and unmet expectation. What, was, what, was, what you thought was being said was not what they were saying. There was a miscommunication or there wasn't communication. Things were not being communicated. And then either you had expectations. I thought this is what we said. I thought this is what we were going to do. And, and I thought this is where this was going. Why isn't this panning out? Unmet expectation, miscommunication. So much conflict there for us. And so we need to have good expectations. As God's people are are leaving a place of of, um, captivity, 70 years, they have some good expectations. We're going to take 50,000 people and we're going to traverse all the way back to our land. And we're going to start living there. We're going to start trying to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and rebuild the wall. And we're going to do these things But as we get into this story through Ezra and Nehemiah, so much opposition comes against them, so much opposition, people discouraging them, people fighting them, squabbles within the group. It's difficult. And so if they had the wrong expectations setting out, then they were just going to be frustrated, frustrated. Because they've spent all this time, all these years, they've waited. They've packed everything up, and they're heading out. Now again, as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah, there's this picture that we keep seeing of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to renew and restore His people. God is faithful to renew and restore His people. And that He calls His people to a place. He calls his people to a place. Look in the beginning right here, verse 1. Now, these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity, those of the exile, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. So remember, as we said before, the, these people were carried off captive by Nebuchadnezzar. That was God's judgment on them. This didn't just happen by mistake. God wasn't kind of overwhelmed. Like, all right, people, I'm sorry. You just, we'll figure it out. Just go to captivity. I'll kind of come up with a plan to come get you in a few years. His plan was that they, they would be carried off to captivity, and then after 70 years, he would bring them back. He took them from a place that he provided to a place that He provided, and he's bringing them back to a place that He provided. God calls His people to a specific place. We see this in what God calls Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you." God called the Hebrew slaves to a promised land in Exodus 6. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God called His people back from captivity. We see this even in the New Testament. God calls His people no longer to a specific kingdom, a specific geographical territory on the earth, but he calls them into an eternal, an eternal kingdom. He calls us into his kingdom, into an eternal covenant with him, to live a life of faithfulness to him, right where we are. Acts 17 says that God sets the boundaries of the nation. Right? So he you think he sets literally He sets the boundaries of the nation. This is what God does. He doesn't do those things and then say, well, my people, they're out there. Hopefully, they can kind of figure out what to do and how to live and how to be. Ephesians 2.10 says that God created us to do good works that he prepared for us to do. So, I want to say something that's really insightful. I said this a couple of weeks ago, I think, but in case you don't know, you guys are here you're right here you're right here this is this is where god has you maybe tomorrow he'll move you somewhere else maybe in a, a year you'll be somewhere else but right now he has you here where he has you is where he has you where you are you're following the lord and you're being obedient to him is where he has you god has placed us here he has called us to a specific place to be His faithful ambassadors to the world around us and to belong to His church, His people. So just as God guided His people through the Old Testament, I mean, there's so much journeying in the Old Testament. So He's guiding His church in this church age, in the new covenant. He's guiding His people along. And again, we talked about how we don't have this, of our life, we don't have this huge lens to see what God's doing, whereas we can look in in the Old Testament and see what God was doing. Right now, for us, we don't have a huge lens about what God's doing in the world, what He's doing in our life. But we know that we can trust Him because He has proven Himself faithful again and again and again. So He's called His people to a place to do life, to do ministry, to have meaning and purpose, not just to kind of hang out, and occupy. The people were called to return to the dwell where God had provided for them in their inheritance. God calls His people. The second thing is that God calls His people to a people. Again, really obvious statement here. But just hang with me for a second. So many times we, it, this is part of our culture. We can, we can be a part of something, but then just kind of do it on our own, right? You can be a, a fan of this team and just kind of do it by yourself. You can, you can be a part of this, sometimes a company, and you just kind of work by yourself. You're by yourself. And so we have this idea that we can belong to the church because I'm a Christian. I can be God's people. That's cool, but I don't need to be around God's people. I just want to challenge you, if, if you think that, where do you find that in the Bible? Where in Scripture do you ever read about God's people being alone by themselves? You don't. A quick little answer for you so you don't have to do the research, but you can. You don't find it. Actually, what you find is God's people doing life together. They're, they're called to one another, they're called to have relationships with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another. This is why as a church, we have, as members, we have a confession and we have a church covenant. Our covenant says, this is how we agree to live together. We're going to pray for the needs of one another. We're going to pray for, the, for one another to grow in godliness. We're going to be accountable for one another in our walk with the Lord. Because God calls His people to His people, to be together. So we see this in the Old Testament. Clearly. They're heading back from Judea and Jerusalem, all through verses 2 through 67, lists of people. Now, if you just kind of scan over this list, first of all, if you could read these names without making a mistake, that would be pretty impressive. But you just see all these people, hundreds of people, thousands of people, Priests, Levites, servants, they all matter to God. Every one of these people is in God's Word. And so, as we're going through our, like, our Scripture reading, and if you you do a Bible reading plan where you read through the Bible, and that kind of makes you read some of these hard places that you might usually just skip around, and you're looking at these names, these lists of names, and you're like, okay, why are these, like, in the Bible? Like, you know, we have limited space here. Why, why did they make the cut? <laughs> when there's all these questions I have that aren't answered in the Bible. That, that would have been helpful. And it's just a reminder that God has put together His Word, and He's highlighted these things. They're here. These names, these numbers, these people, they matter to the Lord. He does not miss them. Think about the Lamb's Book of Life has the names written of God's people. It's not like he has a desk and there's just kind of piles of papers everywhere. And the Lord's like, yeah, I think there are names here somewhere. Let me find that list. God is absolutely precise. He is not wondering. man. I, you know, it's ish. God doesn't work with ish. Uh, you know, my people, I don't know, there are this many people, ish. Give or take, we're not sure. They haven't showed up for a while. <laughs> That's not how it works for the Lord. We see that he's diligent to record. These are the things that matter. These people, they matter. They don't really don't matter to us, it doesn't seem like. I mean, I, I can't even pronounce their names. But they matter to the Lord because we know from chapter one, he stirred in their spirit to bring them from the promise from, from captivity into the promised land, back to Jerusalem, Judah. So it's an interesting thing for us as we see this. Another thing we need to take note of, in, in, here in verse 62, there's this kind of question about the, the lineage or the kind of the hereditary or the, are, are these people of a priestly lineage. They say, these, they, they, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urm and Thumen, which is a fascinating thing. They weren't saying, "You, sorry, we can't keep the record, so you can't serve as priests. They're saying, until we can affirm that you are of God's people, you're not of Bab- from, from Babylon, you're not Assyrian or Babylonian, until we can prove that you're of the right pedigree, so to speak, not out of a sense of kind of just looking down on others, but out of God's covenant, out of the Levitical law, they were intentional to be obedient to God's law. So, we have all these names, information, information, kind of feels pointless. Then we come to this point where it's like, listen, there were these guys who wanted to be priests. They felt like they were of the lineage to be priests, but they couldn't find the records anywhere. And the priest didn't say, well, you know, uh, I like you. You seem like you're a good person. I think you know enough of the Bible. They're like, we need to make sure that you are qualified to do this. They were serious. They were not careless or haphazard with their worship. They were so serious about how they were going to worship God. Here they've been in captivity for 70 years, and they're coming back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the altar and start practicing their faith again, obediently to the Levitical law, and they wanted to do it the right way. They weren't just winging it. They weren't like, well, God's gracious, He'll forgive us, let's just kind of do what feels good to us. Let's just conduct our worship in a way that that kind of reaches outsiders and that people kind of find attractive. Or or let's just kind of do whatever is, is kind of comfortable for us. Like, no, let's do this the right way. Let's make sure that we're being obedient to what God has told us to do. And so many times, as God's people, even gathered with God's people, we act as if God doesn't speak to these things. We act as, as if, well, as long as it's not prohibited in Scripture, I think we're free to do it. As long as it's not a sin, I think it's acceptable. And that is not the wisdom of God. That's not what he has given us. He's given us his revealed word on how we are to worship him, how we're to follow him, how we're to be obedient, how we're to live together, how we're to worship together. This is what God has given us. And so you can see they're very careful with who they're going to allow to to serve as priests. It says they're going to consult this it sounds like a person at first, Urim and Thummin, Thummin, and it's not a person. It's kind of a weird, um, I shouldn't say weird, it's this odd thing that we don't know a lot about in Scripture, but for we understand that these were, these were stones that were, that were held in the priestly garment, on the chest of the priest, and somehow, we don't know how, they were used to determine God's will on things. So, you'd bring a question to the Lord, and somehow, the Lord would would speak to the priest through those stones. This was a very significant thing. This is how, one of the ways the Lord was speaking to His people. And so, they were like, we're not saying you cannot be a priest, or you're outside, and we're just being exclusive. They're saying, we're just going to consult the Lord, because we're not going to blow this. We're not going to screw this up. We're going to be intentional with this. This is too serious to be cavalier with. So God's people, as a gathered people, were intentional with how they honored and served the Lord. But we, as God's people, we know we're similar to the, those in captivity in that we are also in a foreign land. We're strangers. Ephesians two, nineteen says, So then you are... Strangers, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. To the world, to those who are going about their life in this world, who are not following Christ, who don't want God, and, and although they might say they do, they're not following God. To them we're strangers and aliens. But as God's people, we don't not have a kingdom. We are fellow citizens. And saints as the members of the household of God. So as a people feeling this tension of the, the already and the not yet. Already Christ has come and he's shared the gospel and he's gathering his church, the bride, together. Already he's beginning to do these things, but not yet has he brought them to their completion. Not yet is there is are all things restored and has he made all things perfect. So we feel the tension as God's people, even called together as a church, a local church. I am a broken person. The elders, are, we're, we're broken people. The church members, broken. We have problems. We have sin. We're trying to follow the Lord, but we're still contending against the flesh. And so there's this tension, this struggle in us, And so then, that's going to be in the church. That's going to be with us as we gather together. That's going to be with us as we seek to do life together. The tension of, man, I'm trying to follow the Lord, but I'm still selfish. I'm trying to follow the Lord, but I still want things my way. I'm trying trying to follow the Lord, but I'm still prideful and arrogant, and I, I can't tame my tongue. So we're called as a people, to a people, to hold this tension, faithfulness to God, Obedience to God, even in the midst of being aliens and foreigners in in this land. And even at times, you know, when you're fighting sin, and you just feel like that sin nature is like, when's it gonna die? Like this is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing about being a Christian and maturing in your faith is you can see the old nature, and you see yourself contending against the old man. And the more you mature, Lord willing, you, you continue to mature and, and you begin to feel more aligned with the man of God, with the godliness, and that sin nature feels foreign. It's like when something kind of begins to, like, a shadow, like, I don't want that. That's not me anymore. Those aren't the things I love. I don't do those things anymore. And so as we're becoming more like Christ, we, again, we feel this tension of being God's people we're still contending against our flesh. We're contending to not be comfortable here in this world, but to know our citizenship is in heaven. We are also called to a lifestyle of worship. This is God's calling to His people, a lifestyle of worship. As we get to the end of chapter 2, we see that an offering is taken up. Now, keep in mind... At the end of chapter 2, they've made it. Right? This one chapter that traverses all this land, they've made it. They've arrived. Verse 68, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is, in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. Right? They, they want to rebuild the temple. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury the work of, of the work 61,000 derricks of gold and 5,000 of silver, 100 priestly garments. So this is after King Cyrus gave them so much stuff. I mean, we notice in chapter one, King Cyrus just got gave them everything, give them whatever they need, whatever these people need, give it to them, and then. The people of God who are leaving were told to go and ask for people to give offerings as well. So they kind of pillage the Babylonians. They, They take all this gold and all this stuff with them. So these people have plenty of resources, and they get back to Jerusalem. And they see the temple destroyed. This place where God communes with them. And they're compelled to give more, to give even more. To the rebuilding of the temple. And this shows us, again, that God's people are called to be a people who worship Him, or called to a lifestyle that honors Him, that worships Him. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. We are to be worshipers of God. God is to be worshipped, and he is to be worshipped by his people. Philippians two ten says That that the name of Jesus Christ, that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will worship Him. All people will worship Him. He was created to be worshipped, and He will be worshipped. We were made to worship Him to worship God and God alone, not other things. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we prone to worship? What are we prone to give our heart to in worship? Now, if you're a Christian, this should be a pretty easy question for you to answer. You should be aware of the things that tempt you. You should be aware of the things that tempt you to and call for you to worship them. You should know them because you should be actively fighting against them. If you don't follow Jesus, maybe this is a new thought. You are worshiping something. Everyone's worshiping something. Your time and your energy, your passion is going to something. That's the question. What are we prone to worship? What are we prone to worship? church. Think about that for a moment in your own heart. See, God, He created the universe. He created the universe to reveal His majesty and for our enjoyment, for our enjoyment, for His majesty. We were created to worship Him. And to enjoy Him forever. And just like Adam in the garden, we chose sin. Our nature is sin. Our desires initially is to reject God's ways. We go after and we worship broken things. Things that cannot save. Things that cannot love us. Things that cannot deliver us. And not only that, but by ourselves, left to our own devices, we're slaves to that. We can acknowledge, without Christ, we can acknowledge all day long that we're prone to to be a slave to something, to broken things that don't save. But we are powerless to do anything about it. You are powerless to save yourself from the things you're enslaved to apart from Christ. Without Christ, you're a slave to worshiping empty things, pointless things. But all through the Bible, all through the Scriptures, we see the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again and again. That God rescues His people. He rescues them. Jesus Christ came for us. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead to rescue His people so that we could be free. We're no longer slaves to sin, as Romans 7, 6 says, but we are slaves to Christ. We are brought from death to life. No longer are we chasing empty, pointless things. As God's people, worshiping Him, we worship Him by acknowledging who He is, God. We worship Him by obeying His Word, the Bible. We worship Him by enjoying Him, finding our delight in Him, by being satisfied. In Him. Church, we are called to a lifestyle of worship. The place where you're at in life, where you live, the people around you, the place you're at, the people that you belong to, the lifestyle that you are pursuing. Do these things point you to Christ and to grow in godliness? Or away from God. And toward selfishness. See God is bringing his people. From Babylon. Back to their land. To worship and to follow him. The days ahead are not easy. Life is not just fun and good. They're called to do this faithfully. And they do so with the hope that their God will sustain them and that their God will continue to restore and renew them. So we, as God's people, seeking to be faithful, seeking to honor Him, trusting that God will be faithful to renew and to restore His people. Let's pray.